Professor Finkelstein, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'd like to begin by talking about your career and your background. Uh, after law school, you went into academia straight away. Why is that? Well, I was doing a PhD in philosophy at the same time that I was doing a JD. And I never very seriously considered a career in practice. It was either going to be philosophical academia or legal academia for me. And then I discovered I could combine them. Um, needless to say, there were many more jobs in law schools than there were in philosophy departments with greater variety of, of choice. Um, but very early on coming out of law school, before I was even done with my PhD, I uh, had a, an entry to Berkeley and was offered a job at, at the Berkeley Law School, which back then was called Bolt Hall. And I felt that it was a very receptive place for interdisciplinary research. So I headed off to Berkeley straight away. Um, I finished my dissertation while I was actually a, a new professor there. Um, in, in, uh, and they, I call them acting professors <laughs> out in the California system. Uh, and uh, defended my dissertation after six months of being on the job there. Now. Over the past few months, you've been uh, writing a lot about this idea of politization, uh, politization as it relates to the G uh, DOJ, politization as it relates to the military. Um, can you talk to me about the effects of politization on the rule of law and the dangers of politization as it relates to, let's start with the DOJ. Right, so, so the Department of Justice um, really derives its credibility from taking an even-handed, non-political approach to law enforcement. Of course, the Department of Justice, led by the Attorney General, is the um, chief federal law enforcement agency in the country. Uh, and it is supposed to have a certain amount of separation between the politics that go on in the White House um, and its decisions regarding whom to investigate, who to prosecute, and so on. Um, so that separation and the supposed isolation of the Attorney General from the forces of politics are um, is, is really supposed to be what anchors the Justice Department as a rule of law organization and that gives it the credibility so that when someone is investigated and prosecuted for committing a crime, the country can trust that that is an objective decision merited by the actions that that person has uh, engaged in or suspected, alleged to have engaged in, um, rather than some kind of political vendetta, which is what you find in totalitarian countries, um, where you have you know, the state using the organs of the uh, whatever agency it has as its Justice Department to punish the um, enemies of the president, say, and reward the friends. So that's what we don't want in a Justice Department, and therefore that political separation and insulation is very, very important. Uh, with regard to other 
um, other institutions that are supposed to be apolitical. You mentioned the military, and that is a very fundamental uh, tenet of the military, that it is apolitical. You'll notice if you've ever watched a State of the Union address, for example, with all the Supreme Court justices lined up there, they never clap <laughs> because they are not supposed to show political favoritism on anything that the president is saying in that State of the Union address, um, uh, the Supreme Court and the military as well. So you will find senior military leaders sitting there uh, at the State of the Union address not clapping <laughs> along with the members of the Supreme Court. So, um, so we have the Justice Department, we have the Supreme Court um, and other, other federal judges, and then we have the military and all three of those um, aspects of government, of the federal government are supposed to be politics free. Now, whether they actually are is you know, a much discussed question. Now, when, you writ, uh, when you've written about politicization in DOJ, you refer to the conduct of Bill Barr, who obviously was the attorney general under Donald Trump. And there was an article that you written a long, long time ago, or at least a relatively long time ago, about the president's statement about his shooting somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue or something like that, I'm paraphrasing. Um, what is your position on immunity as it relates to the president, generally speaking, and perhaps in terms of the conduct of that specific president. Okay, so you might remember that Donald Trump had bragged that during the debates in the run-up to the 2016 election, he had bragged that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and he wouldn't lose any followers. Right. And that became kind of a, a trope, the president who could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. Um, and the, then there are any number of crimes that Donald Trump is alleged to have committed. Most recently, of course, just yesterday, the um, January 6th committee referred Donald Trump to the Justice Department for four crimes relating to January 6th um, and uh, culminating in insurrection. Um, and there were other investigations into his conduct. Uh, for example, the Manhattan DA, the uh, New York uh, Attorney General, which is a civil investigation and, and lawsuit. Um, there is also what happened in Georgia uh, with Georgia officials looking into that. There's the Mar-a-Lago issue. So there's a, a, any number of um, crimes that Donald Trump may or may not have um, committed. Now, when he was president, this was very, very tricky because the Justice Department has, has been committed to several memos that came out of the Office of Legal Counsel, and those memos say that a sitting president cannot be indicted. And that is longstanding Justice Department policy. So if you'll remember when Robert Mueller issued his report one of the most significant things that he said in that report was, I take myself to be bound by the Justice Department policy that a sitting president cannot be indicted. And therefore, right, even though in effect he hinted, I think there's been obstruction of justice here, um, we cannot indict a sitting president. 
Now, um, what I have written about with my co-author, Professor Richard Painter, um, is that in fact that memo is incorrect and it is not tied to existing Supreme Court precedent. So if you look at the three cases that have come down from the Supreme Court, uh, US v. Nixon, um, and then there was the, the Clinton case, Clinton v. Jones, and then there is the Trump v. Vance case. All three of them make very, very clear that a sitting president gets no special favors, that he is not above the law. Uh, none of those cases addresses the question of actually indicting a sitting president, but they all address the question of whether or not the president is above the law. So the first one has to do with whether or not um, he has to, whether or not Nixon had to turn over evidence, specifically the famous tapes, um, to the special counsel's office, who was Leon Jaworski, who was trying to get a hold of those tapes to investigate him. Uh, the second one had to do with whether or not President Clinton had to sit for a deposition in the Paula Jones case. And he said, I'm too busy to sit for this deposit, you know, deposition. I'm being busy being president of the United States. And Justice Scalia famously wrote in that case that I will believe that when he no, when the president no longer has time to play golf, then I will believe that he is too busy to answer to a deposition. But meanwhile, he better show up. <laughs> And, and the third case is most recently the Trump v. Vance case in 2020, in which um, the Supreme Court, very conservative Supreme Court, filled with people that Donald Trump appointed, um, said that um, you, a sitting president could not bar uh, the uh, Manhattan DA's office from seeking the personal financial records uh, including his tax returns that are in the possession of his former accountants. Um, and so the accounting for Mazars had to, under that decision, turn over the, the financial records, which it looks like the public may be about to finally see. Long story short, the jurisprudence in the Supreme Court all says that a sitting president should be treated like anyone else. And yet the Justice Department has had this policy. So why does the Justice Department have that policy? Well, I think I would go back to your highlighting the concept of politicization. It's a highly politicized enterprise, especially the Office of Legal Counsel, which is sort of the, like a law firm within a law firm. It's a, it's a mini advisory office that advises the Attorney General, who in turn advises the President, and that office within an office has for many years been highly politicized, whereas in its original charter, it's clear that it is not supposed to be a political office. It's supposed to be an apolitical office. So um, I think the Justice Department has done itself some damage by allowing the Office of Legal Counsel to become so politicized and um, and not surprisingly, that office is the one that generated that memo that says a sitting president can't be indicted. Well, now with regard to Donald Trump, of course, he's no longer a sitting president, he's a former president. And 
even the Justice Department uh, does not maintain that a former president can't be indicted. So the question is whether there's the political will there and the political courage to go ahead and indict someone who may be guilty of crimes um, when there is so much uh, fear around what it would mean to actually go there given the current state of politics today. Now, I'd like to shift a bit from the DOJ, which we talked about at the start of this interview, to the CIA. And you've written about the CIA's RDI program, um, a program that was driven primarily by Dick Cheney uh, many years ago. And it's an interesting contrast these days because the January 6th committee and one of its primary members or person who has emerged uh, as the face of the committee, some would argue, seems to be in contrast with her father. How would you discuss that contrast? How interesting and rare is that? Well, thank you for raising that uh, really interesting question that I've been uh, tracking. So, I mean, let's go back to Dick Cheney and the RDI program. So the RDI program is Rendition, Detention, and Interrogation. And that was a program whereby shortly after 9-11, uh, when the country was really in the grip of, of fear and terror around the possibility of another terrorist attack, the um, Congress had passed the uh, authorization for the use of military force in 2001. And meanwhile, um, of course, there had been, we had sent uh, troops into Afghanistan uh, and later troops into Iraq, um, basically trying to get a hold on terrorism, Middle East terrorism, and, and trying to get rid of Al-Qaeda uh, and the Taliban. Later, of course, we had the rise of ISIS, but, but that was much later. Um, and what the, um, the, the program that was put in place very early on uh, came really out of the CIA's handling of the interrogation of terrorist suspects. I mean, the perception was that this was a war of information, that we are going to have to forestall the next terror attack by acquiring large amounts of information. And the CIA felt it was its mission to design programs that would help elicit that information. What they did, which was horribly misguided, um, both from the standpoint of law and from the standpoint of efficacy, really gaining information, is they started engaging in very harsh tactics. So they started to um, encourage and even put training and a program in place to engage in what is essentially torture. Uh, in the beginning, we would detain people in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we would um, actually render them, this is the rendition part, to another country, for example, Egypt um, or Macedonia, countries that were not so squeamish and were prepared to engage in torture. Um, so that's one thing that we did, but pretty soon we started taking over that function ourselves. Um, most people know of the use of a technique called waterboarding, uh, in which uh, a detainee is strapped to a board and either dunked in water or has water poured into his mouth, 
um, and that simulates the experience of drowning. And there was this idea that if we engage in torture of detainees, they'll uh, be more willing to, to give us information. Well, what it turns out is that when you engage in these techniques, you do get them to talk, but they don't necessarily give you accurate information. They'll say anything they think that'll get you to stop. And, it, you know, in one prison, in Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, um, it's estimated that about 80% of the people that we were bringing in, detaining and, and subjecting to these techniques, actually had no information at all to give, that they were just sort of, you know, as, as we might say, bounty babies, people who were brought in because there were bounties offered on their heads. Um, and, and so it was a very, very misguided program, even if what you really want to do is get tough on, on terror, take the gloves off, as they say, um, one needs to, to do that intelligently. And, and torture just doesn't work to get you information, especially if you're not rounding up the right people. Um, many years later, here we are over 20 years later, Guantanamo Bay Prison is still open. Um, there are still a number of detainees there, some of which, some of whom have never been charged with a crime. Um, and one of the reasons why we were so challenged in figuring out how to actually give a fair trial to these detainees is that so many of them had been tortured. And in a regular court of justice, of course, you would take that information and you would say, this is not admissible because this information, this confession, or this, you know, this hint that was given um, has uh, been gained under impermissible circumstances. And so it has to be tossed out. It can't be brought into court. Uh, well, once you uh, finish tossing out all the information that is tainted by torture, you are basically left with nothing. Uh, and so it's very hard to try these cases. So it was a terrible stain on U.S. values. Um, it was a terrible thing for U.S. national security. That program, in fact, was used by ISIS later to do recruiting uh, because, in fact, they found they could recruit new members by um, saying how terrible the United States was because we engage in torture. Um, and, and that convinced people that the US is not the shining city on the hill, as we like to, to believe that we are, um, but that we uh, engage in a lot of bad things. Um, and uh, you know, that lost the sympathy of a lot of the world, not just of folks in the Middle East, not just would-be terrorists. Um, it was, a, it was a lawless program, and, and, but one of the things that was done to try to justify it was that there were memos that were issued from, you guessed it, the Office of Legal Counsel, right? Um, memos to kind of um, justify or bless this program through the eyes of the law. The memos that were issued were not, in fact, accurate at all, legally speaking. They were very distorted. Uh, convoluted arguments that didn't hold up in the light of day. And in fact, the Justice Department some years later pulled the memos and said, we don't stand by these anymore. But meanwhile, a lot of damage was done. And I think a lot of damage was done to our democracy. Um, we ended up with sort of runaway presidential authority, presidents who th thought that they could do anything they wanted. 
And Obama, um, when he came in in 2009, more or less said, yeah, that's right. I'm not going to prosecute anyone. Our Justice Department is not going to prosecute anyone who relied on those memos. Um, and we're going to look forward, not backwards. Well, it's a wonderful sentiment, but when you when you don't have accountability for violating the law, lawlessness magnifies. Right? And, and that's really what happened. And the lawlessness, a lot of it took place in the White House with the feeling that I'm president, I can do whatever I want, since that was the lesson coming out of the RDI program. Um, and I think that you can trace a, a line from the failure to have any kind of accountability for the RDI program to the rise of Trump and the willingness that he had to abuse executive authority. Um, and there we have Liz Cheney, ironically, the daughter of Dick Cheney, who was really the, the moving force behind that whole RDI program, fighting desperately tooth and nail and actually being willing to lose her primary over it, um, to sit on the January 6th committee and try to call um, Donald Trump to, to justice. So we will see where that goes. I hope that ultimately she wins out. Um, but it is a contrast, and I wonder if she ever reflects on the connection between the programs that her dad started and and the lawlessness in the Trump administration. It is something we'll probably never see again, that kind of coincidence. Certainly a compelling discussion to have. Now, I'd like to shift a bit um, from your research in what can be classified, I suppose, as domestic policy and domestic discussion to foreign policy and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You've written about the causes behind that invasion, the role that NATO played. Where do you see this going as the months and years here progress? And what do you see as the cause behind why all of this took place? Well, I mean, I basically blame it on Russian aggression. Um, it's, you know, it's tragic um, that, um, Number one, it's tragic that in 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea, uh, that the world didn't react more strongly. There was a little bit of a let's look the other way phenomenon, and uh, and and we let you know NATO and and the United States as part of NATO really did not want a confrontation with Russia, and there was a sense that you know this is going to be it. Um, that's not going to go farther than this. Um, but of course, you know, a number of years later, and again, this, you know, interesting, the theme here goes back to you allow, you allow someone or some country to get away with crimes, whether domestic or international, with impunity, and you don't punish those crimes and, and you, you know, allow it to continue. Um, and lo and behold, it gets worse the next time. And so, um, you know, uh, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia this time, an act that violated all, um, you know, the law of armed conflict, uh, international relations, the sovereignty of Ukraine, um, and just rode roughshod over that, those sacrosanct principles in international law, and then fought in a way that 
um, many people have characterized as war crimes. Uh, and President Biden has called, um, you know, has called the Russian Federation uh, war, out for engaging in war crimes and has called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. So, um, you know, I think there's good reason to think that. Uh, what the long game will be is very difficult to say. The U.S. and NATO have been walking a fine line of course, of trying to give as much support to Ukraine as possible without becoming uh, what is called co-belligerence, namely without itself becoming a fighter uh, directly engaged in conflict. So uh, the U.S. has given billions of dollars of aid and weapons and intelligence support that intelligence support probably does cross the line into co-belligerency at the very least. Um, and some of the aid packages and the magnitude of the weaponry that's being sent may do that as well. Um, but so far, we have managed to hold the line so that the conflict is contained. It is still between Russia and Ukraine. Um, there is a pretty significant risk that third parties will be drawn in. Um, you know, Belarus, of course, which is a staging ground for uh, Russian, uh, Russian aggression and Russian action has already been drawn in. Uh, but you could think of that as just sort of a, an extension of the Russian Federation. Um, there will have, to, you know, the conflict will have to end with a negotiation one way or another. And so the question is, how does that negotiation come about? What are the conditions of negotiation? Um, you know, what would bring Russia to the table in a serious way? And of course, the huge question is how great of a risk is there that Russia will use a nuclear weapon if it feels itself badly enough cornered uh, under, under present circumstances? Do you see a nuclear risk that is significant? Uh, in this conflict? Well, that's a great question to ask. And in fact, I have convened a working group at my center, Center for Ethics and the Rule of Law at the University of Pennsylvania to study that very question. Um, we have had one meeting of the working group and we'll be having more, though I'm not prepared to announce results yet of those meetings. Um, I think the consensus among experts is that while the risk has grown considerably since the start of the conflict in, in Ukraine, um, that there's still quite a low chance that there would be use of a nuclear weapon. We can't rule it out. Um, and if you have a very low probability event, you know, even if that probability doubles or triples, it might still be a pretty low probability event, which is probably what it is. But still, the increase itself in risk to, to the world, um, because it would be a world, you know, a globally cataclysmic event were there to be any use of a nuclear weapon um, there or anywhere else on the globe. Um, you know, the, the risk is not one that we ought to tolerate. Um, and so the question is, what can be done to try to bring that risk down as far as possible? That's a great segue. Um into the work that you're doing now and projects that are coming in the next year. I appreciate you taking the time 
to do this. Thank you very much. Tell me a bit about um, what's to come in the coming year. Well, so um, we have been working on domestic violent extremism as one of our projects. Uh, we held a conference this past fall on DVE, as it's known, and we're looking at some of the risks and triggers of, of violent extremism here at home. Uh, the January 6th investigations and prosecutions are, of course, all about that, prosecuting extremism and trying to forestall it through deterrence and, and breaking up some of these um, networks of extremists, uh, particularly functioning online. Um, we are a bunch of lawyers, mainly national security lawyers, um, and so we don't do the empirical work that some groups do to track, for example, hate speech online and to try to identify where these groups of, you know, hate organizations are located, where they have most pull. Um, but we do look at legal reforms designed to do that and to try to help bolster um, law enforcement powers in this area and to look at some of the root causes. So one of the things that we've been looking at considerably is um, whether or not civic education is an initiative that could help combat DVE. Uh, we find, and, and this some of this work that we have done in conjunction with the Annenberg Public Policy Center, where our offices are located and where we have a, a partnership, um, the Annenberg Public Policy Center runs a survey every year to assess the level of civic knowledge in uh, among American citizens. And the results have been startling. Though there was some improvement, ironically, during the Trump years when people were very focused on the news and really listening a lot. But what they find is a, an appallingly low percentage of the country can name even the three branches of the federal government. Um, so when you talk about, for example, the fact that members of our military take an oath to defend the Constitution. This is important. Not an oath to defend the country. They take an oath to defend the Constitution. Do they even really understand what that means? Right? It is law above men, as the slogan goes. But what does it really mean to have a, a, a to make a pledge to defend the Constitution? Well, I think what that means is that um, no single individual, um, no political leader, uh, no political ideals even, are more important than upholding our laws in the country. And so for those laws to be upheld, what we need is accountability for those who violate the law. That's what January 6th is about. That's what you know, the accountability that didn't happen around the RDI program would have been about. You need accountability, but you need a knowledge base. You need people who understand and can combat in their own minds a lot of the disinformation that is out there uh, relating to the levers of democratic governance. Um, how do people know when Donald Trump says we ought to just tear up the Constitution, just shred it, it's not important. How do they know how dangerous that is? Do they really understand that, right? Um, do they understand 
that when John Eastman writes a memo that says, um, just have the vice president refuse to certify the votes and certify the votes for Donald Trump instead. And he should say there's an alternate slate of electors. And, you know, John Eastman had a whole memo which he sent to Donald Trump about how to get Trump instead of Biden certified um, as president coming out of the 2020 election. The general public, if they don't have enough knowledge of the way democracy works in our country, might buy into that and say, oh, yes, sounds plausible. Why not? And um, the gravest danger is that the military, active duty military, would buy into that and that many in the military have been radicalized uh, and, and are vulnerable because of the lack of civic knowledge. So we are uh, trying to help provide some support to military leaders who are trying to bring civic education training to, um, to their active duty servicemen and women. Uh, and uh, we are trying to look at other modalities to support uh, civics engagement and civics education. Uh, that turns out to be very important, not just for, for children, not just K through 12, but adult civic education and to have it repeated on a regular basis. So we're looking at that. Um, in the spring, we have a conference on what is called super soldiers. This raises an issue in bioethics where there are enhancement to military power um, of soldiers uh, to military capacities such as um, drugs that make soldiers resistant to pain or um, make them uh, more aggressive or uh, even protect them in various ways. Is it ethical for us to place soldiers in greater danger, um, which they can tolerate only because we're enhancing their capacities and their resistance levels? So we're going to look at that as part of our sort of ethics in uh, military conflict uh, program and um, and civic education. And we're going to be looking at the interface between the business community and, uh, and national security and how business executives can better support national security through their firms uh, and what it means to have responsible corporations that are willing to constrain their own profit seeking on certain occasions because they feel a civic duty to help defend the country. So those are just some of the, the many things we're looking at. We're looking at Ukraine and Russia and war crimes, uh, as well as uh, what I mentioned before, which is the risk of a nuclear exchange and uh, trying to see what safety measures are in place in the present conflict to try to forestall that. Professor, thank you so much once again for your time. Uh, incredibly compelling and interesting. Thank you once again.